Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to the book of Micah. The book of Micah, we are steadily making our way through the Minor Prophets with an overview sermon on each book of the Minor Prophets, the 12 Minor Prophets. If you are here for the first time, you'll find a black hardcover Bible in the pew in front of you. Just go ahead and grab that hardback and turn to page 823. You'll find the book of Micah. Now, if, you've, if you're a guest here, you've come, on a, you've come during a unique series. We're going through the Minor Prophets, and we don't typically do this, but every so often we'll do an overview of a whole book of the Bible. So we're doing the whole book of Micah today. It's seven chapters, and we'll do an overview of the book. But we're still hoping in expository preaching, what we believe is that, uh, or what I teach here is that expository preaching is when the words and the goal of the passage controls the words and goal of the sermon. And so even though it's seven chapters, you can still get the words and goal of the whole book to control the sermon. And I'm seeking to do that this morning. And you can check yourselves in the scripture if this is so. So I'm going to read Micah 1, verse 1. We're not going to read the whole, all seven chapters right now. Don't worry. To chapter 2, verse 3. Okay? And then we'll just pick spots as we go through the sermon. But here, Micah 1, 1. The word of Yahweh that came to Micah the Moreshite, what he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, all you peoples. Pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord Yahweh will be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Look, Yahweh is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? That's the capital of Israel. And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem, the capital of Judah? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned in the fire. And I will destroy all her idols. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used again for a prostitute. Because of this, I will lament and wail. This is Micah now speaking from his own perspective. Because of this, I will lament and wail. I will walk barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackals and mourn like ostriches. For her wound is incurable and has reached even Judah. It has approached my people's city gate as far as Jerusalem. Don't announce it in Gath. Don't weep at all. Roll in the dust in Bethlehem. Depart in shameful nakedness, you residents of Shafir. The residents of Zanan will not come out. Beth Ezel is lamenting. Its support is taken from you. Though the residents of Maroth anxiously wait for something good, disaster has come from Yahweh to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the horses to the chariot, you residents of Lachish. This is the beginning of sin for daughter Zion. 
because Israel's acts of rebellion can be traced to you. Therefore, send farewell gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Achzib are a deception to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror against you who live in Maresha. The nobility of Israel will come to Adullam. Shave your head, shave yourselves bald, and cut off your hair in sorrow for your precious children. Make yourselves as bald as an eagle, for they have been taken from you into exile. Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light they will accomplish it, because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They, take, they also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. Therefore, Yahweh says, I am now planning disaster against this nation. You cannot free your necks from it. Then you will not walk so proudly because it will be an evil time. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Father, we pray that you would help us to meditate on Scripture now. We thank you for speaking to us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to feel what you're saying to us. Soften our hearts. Open our eyes. Incline our hearts to your word and not to material gain. Help us see through the lies that this world is constantly pressuring us to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We live in confusing times. Just recently, some of you might have heard that a a prominent pastor, a reformed pastor theologian, had recently um, stopped pastoring, went to school, and then gave up his Christian faith and said, I'm no longer a Christian. I can't call myself a Christian. I'm not a Christian. Just got divorced from his wife. And then another prominent Christian leader um, just renounced his faith from Australia, and he wrote the song, one of my favorite songs, one of my more recent favorite songs, Oh, Praise the Name. You guys know we sing that song sometimes, Oh, Praise the Name. One of the songwriters there had recently renounced his Christianity and saying that he's no longer a Christian. These two men are confused about what is the truth, about true Christianity. They've even said, you know, it's just Christians can be nice. They can also be very mean and jerks. So I don't, it's not particularly relevant to be a Christian, one said. And the other one thought, you know, I've sinned against other people who, who are we, where we were calling their, their acts sinful, and it's not sinful, and I'm sorry. And I'm asking them to forgive me for calling what the Bible calls sinful acts, for calling that sinful. I was wrong. And so he asks them for forgiveness. So this is confusing times that we're in. This is the pressure of those around us, and it's, it's the pressure even inside churches to capitulate to the culture. Looking around at the spiritual state of our society and the churches in our society can sometimes, in some ways, be discouraging. Now, there are bright spots of hope, and I still am generally an optimistic person, and I'm fairly optimistic of what God is doing here in L.A., even in the midst of all the craziness. There are bright spots indeed, but still, it can be disheartening. And those of you, unlike me, those of you whose jobs are in the daily grind with non-Christians, you feel a lot more than I do the regular pressure of the way the world thinks pressing itself upon you to get you think, to think the way they think so that the way you think is weird and the way they think is normal, it seems. It's very confusing. 
You can feel like you might be misguided and lost. What if I'm wrong? What if the Bible's wrong? What if Jesus is wrong? What if my church is wrong? And the majority of the unbelievers around you can seem to be a more powerful appeal to the truth than what you have with your Christian friends. And so some Christians lose their way. Some professing Christians lose their way. So what we want to do as Christians, what every Christian genuinely wants to do, should want to do, is to see through the lies, see through the lies of this world, see through the lies of the culture, see through the lies of friends, even Christian friends, see through the lies of the internet, see through the lies that press in on us from all sides here in Los Angeles. We want to see through that and not be tricked by the lies. Now the problem is that we are blind, we're partially blind to our sin. All of us have blind spots. So we're blind to our sin, we're confused because the lies often look like the truth, and when you take the lies of this world that look convincing, and you take our blind spots, and then you add it to this secret ingredient, or dangerous ingredient, called presumption, presuming that you're okay, and presuming that you're not wrong, when you presume that you're not wrong, and you add the lies in your own blind spots, what you have is a broken alarm system. The alarm can't sound off in your mind and heart when things are going wrong and you're going the wrong direction. Your immune system is disordered and broken so that a common cold or a fever can kill you because your immune system, your alarm system is broken because of presumption mixed with the lies and the sin in your heart. So we sing songs like Christ Assurance Steady Anchor or He Will Hold Me Fast. Because sometimes it looks like, man, am I going to make it to the end as a Christian? What if I don't make it to the end? What if I'm not really a Christian? What if I make shipwreck of my faith? Are we doomed? And some of us who might be more confident in our Christianity, are we doomed to the cycles of non-growth that we perceive in our lives? This is just who I am. This is a sin in my life. I can't break it in my life. I just can't stop being bitter. I just can't stop gossiping. I, can't, I just can't stop um, giving into lust. I just can't stop giving into snapping out with outbursts of anger. It's just who I am. Are we really doomed to who we are, who we are, that we can't change? That the cycles of sin and blindness are just kind of our lot in life until we, we end? Is that really our only hope? That's pretty hopeless, isn't it? We don't have to be blind, we don't have to be confused, and we don't have to presume that we're okay. Micah wrote this book, the book of Micah, to help the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. So this is during the divided kingdom, Israel in the north, 10 tribes, Judah in the south, but neither of them have been exiled. So this is before 722 BC, 2,700 years ago, okay? Over 2,700 years ago, um, Micah wrote this book to the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, Israel and Judah. They were under the what we now call the old Israelic covenant that God gave through Moses at Sinai. Micah said to them, Micah was calling them, listen, you have broken the old covenant. Remember him, Moses? Remember he took us out of Egypt and you made a covenant with, Israel, with, with Yahweh that you would be his people and he would be your God and you'd be a kingdom of priests and a royal nation? Do you remember that? Do you remember that? That, that, that thing, that holy nation that you promised to be, you have broken it over and over and over again and God is going to judge you. So Micah warns them to listen up to what God is saying because they're not listening, they're being hard of hearing. And then Micah encourages them to look up to God and to the future hope that God will fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what is Micah doing? He's writing to an ancient people 2,700 plus years ago 
to listen to God's warnings and accusations. You're sinning and judgment's coming. Listen. Listen to the accusations. Listen to the warning because you're not listening. And then secondly, look to God for his promised hope that is going to come. That was the message back then. And the message to, to us today is guess what? It's the same message. It's a little bit different. There are some different applications to it, but it's essentially the same message. And here, so here's the main goal, okay? The main goal of the book, I would say, is this. Listen and look to God. It's a little bit broader than I'd say it if I was in a seminary class, but listen and look to God so that you see through the lies and live with his hope. Listen to God and look to God so that you can see through the lies and live with God's hope. All right, so let's take those as the two points of the sermon. Listen to God, look to God, okay? So um, in, in the book of Micah, there are three cycles of, of judgment prophecies, okay? And we're just gonna take them all together and listen to God's accusations and his warnings, okay? We wanna listen to God's accusations and his warnings. He's accusing them of sin. And if you're listening carefully enough, you'll see that you are also guilty of some of these sins. And we are guilty of these sins in some ways. So listen to God's accusations and the judgment to come, his warnings. So let's go to chapter one. I'm not going to read it again. We already read it. But here, God is speaking from his holy temple in heaven. And he he says, I don't know if you saw the imagery as I read it, that God was actually stepping out of heaven, stepping out of his holy temple in heaven and touching down on earth. And he was going to trample on the high places of Samaria and Jerusalem. You always put your capital in the high places, and that's where you worship God, and God was going to step on and trample Jerusalem and the temple and trample Samaria, the capital of Israel and the capital of Judah. That was what God is warning them about. I'm coming, and I want the whole world to hear that I'm coming to judge. And then he mentions their sin in verse 7. Let's look at verse 7 again. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned with fire, and I will destroy all her idols. What sin is that? What sin are they guilty of? Say it. Idolatry. There's idolatry among God's covenant people. They say they're worshiping God, but they also worship idols. And when you worship God and idols, you only worship idols. You don't worship God when you try to worship God and something else. You just worship that something else. And that's what they did. They worshiped carved idols. And God was going to destroy their idolatry. They were guilty of having a Jesus, well, for us, it's a Jesus plus. We're guilty of having a Jesus plus Christianity. I want Jesus and this other part. It's not really for God or against God. It's just kind of there in my life. And it is one of my, it's my parallel commitment. The Bible called that an idol that actually replaces Jesus. So idolatry is one sin, but I didn't finish the verse. There's a second sin here. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used again for a prostitute. What's the sin there? They collect the wages for a what? A prostitute. So what's the sin? Prostitution. Sexual morality. Now, is it saying that the whole nation prostituted itself physically in like sexual intimacy? No, it's, it's, it's speaking symbolically here. Instead of, instead of worshiping God, you cheat on God with other gods. Instead of looking to God for your security, you look to other nations for your security. And so you prostitute yourself with your money, getting money from other nations, dealing with other nations. Well, guess what? Another nation, I'm gonna use another nation to trample you and they're gonna take your money. You wanna use your money for a prostitute? A prostitute's gonna take your money. I'm gonna use another nation to conquer you. You see that? Sexual immorality and idolatry. 
Does that sound familiar in churches? Is there, is there, are churches cheating on Jesus? And are churches giving over, giving over to idolatry? That's what it says in Revelation 2. Remember we went through Revelation 2 and 3 twice in this church? In Revelation 2, it says this, 2.14. I have a few things against you, church at Pergamum. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols, idolatry, and to commit sexual immorality. And then you tolerate the woman Jezebel, verse 20, to the next church, Thyatira. Jezebel deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. What was Jesus convicting the churches of Asia of? Idolatry and sexual immorality, spiritually speaking. Also physically, comes out physically as well, but spiritually is the point. That's the sin. So listen, do you see idolatry, Israel? Do you see idolatry in the church? Do you see sexual immorality cheating on God in the church, in your own life? Look at another sin in verse 12. Here's that deadly ingredient I told you about earlier. Chapter 1, verse 12. Though the residents of Maroth anxiously wait for something good, what's coming to them? Disaster at the gate of Jerusalem. But what are they waiting for? Something what? What are they waiting for? Something what? Something good. Do you ever wonder why lottery tickets and scratchers have such an appeal and gambling? There's this inner sense that something good has to happen to me. Like just today, like this is my lucky day. I feel like I'm just going to get a break right now. There's something inherent and I'm not saying it's good or right or wrong all the time, but I'm just saying there's something inherent that presumes that we're going to get something good all the time. And here, they're disobeying God with idolatry and immorality, and yet they're waiting for what? Something good. Something good is going to happen to me. God is going to bless me. And what's coming? Disaster and judgment. When you presume something's good while God is trying to convict you of your sin, and you're assuming good is coming to you, you got, I mean, you're deaf now. Right? You're deaf. And so God's trying to warn them and say, stop presuming. And so Micah wails and laments. That's the, right, what, that's the right thing to do. When you see your people sinning, when you see your church sinning, when you see sin in your own heart, it's to cry out to God and lament and ask God for grace and mourn over your sin, not look down self-righteously on others. But let's go summarize chapter two. So chapter one summarized would say, would, I'd summarize chapter one by saying, lament over the coming judgment caused by your idolatry and immorality. If I had to summarize chapter two, I'll summarize chapter two with this sentence. And I'll apply it to you the way I'm saying it, but it's also to Israel. Wake up to your injustice and your deafness leading you to inevitable disaster. And on the flip side, and we'll cover this later, hope in God who will gather his sheep. Let's look at the injustice. Look at chapter two, verse one. Here's another sin. So if we're listening to God's accusations, we heard that we're presumptuous. We heard we're idolatrous. We heard we're sexually immoral, spiritually at least, and even physically. Chapter two, what's the sin? Chapter two, verse one. Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. So you're planning wickedness. At morning, they accomplish it. You're carrying out wickedness because of the what in their hands? What do they have in their hands? Power. What do we call it when you abuse power? Anyone know what it's called when you abuse power in a word? I mean, we could call it injustice. Some people call it oppression. Oppression. If you're the weaker one, you can't oppress a stronger person because you don't have the power to, to oppress them. So, when you ha- when you're, so you could sin as being under the power and you could be, sin- you could be sinning as having power, right? And it, do- it doesn't mean that only the one who has more power can sin. The one under the power and over- with the power can sin but the one who has the power can oppress because they could use their power to abuse. The one under doesn't have power to abuse. They'll sin in other ways. Bitterness, 
right? Um, gossip. They'll just find other ways to get back at the one in power. But oppression is the, is the sin of the powerful. Those who have certain privileges, influence, access, abilities, when they use their power not to serve like Christ, but to be served and then to lord it over people, they oppress. And that's what the injustice is here, is that they're oppressing. So oppression is the abuse of power. And get this, brothers and sisters, it's important for Christians to hear this, especially because we're deaf a little bit and we presume. Oppression is not always, it's not always or only intentional. Oppression can be unintentional. You get that? Your sinful oppression can be unintentional. You can be doing it without knowing that you're doing it. That happens all the time. And so in verse 9, sorry, in verse 9 it says, You force women of my, the women of my people out of their comfortable homes, and you take my blessing from their children forever. The most vulnerable in the culture, especially in those days, women and children. They couldn't work, not in those days. And then children. So when they don't have a man to protect them, the powerful take their homes and put them on the streets because they can, because they got the power to do it. That's their sin. Not only that, look at the presumption in verse 6. Look at 2 verse 6. Here's what, here's what the people are saying to the preachers. Quit your what? Quit your preaching. They preach. So stop preaching. Only I could preach. And my, pre- my sermon says stop. You, pre- you're stop. you stop preaching. So quit your preaching. They preach. They should not preach these things. Why? Don't preach that we're sinning. Don't preach that judgment's coming because shame will not what? Look at the verse. Shame will not overtake us. We're not going to be ashamed. We're not doing anything wrong. Judgment's not coming to me. I'm okay. I'm okay. We're okay. Stop preaching. Stop saying we're sinning. Stop trying to convict me of my sin. I'm not sinning. We're not sinning. You're sinning for saying that we're sinning. That's essentially what they're saying. And so what do they want? When you do that, what do you want in the end? Look at verse 11. If a man comes and utters empty lies, I'll preach to you about wine and beer. Do they like that or not like that? What does the verse say? He would be just the preacher for what? For this people. So you tell the true preachers, preaching sin, righteousness, judgment, and God, you tell them to be quiet. And then the preachers who preach wine and beer, what do you tell them? What are they? They're the perfect preachers for you so that you can indulge in drunkenness and sin. Those are the preachers for you. Does that sound like anything in the New Testament? 2 Timothy 4, where people having itching ears will find teachers and preachers for themselves to scratch their itching ears. So Paul tells Timothy, preach the what? Preach the word in season and out of season. Whether they want to hear it or not, you've got to faithfully preach the word. That's what Christians have to do. And yet they presume here that they're okay. I don't need to hear that word. I'm good. I got my own Christian teachers. That's chapter two. Look at chapter three now. Let's overview chapter three. What is chapter three about? So chapter three is, uh, here's the main message of chapter three. Realize and tremble that Jerusalem will be destroyed because you don't see your injustice and blindness because the prophets are unjust and blind. So here's that second cycle. And now he's not just convicting the people. He's convicting the leaders. So look at, verse one, look at verses 1 through 3. Then I said, now listen. Now who's he talking to? Leaders of Jacob. You rulers of the house of Israel. So the leaders, the kings, aren't you supposed to know what is just, what is righteous? But instead, you hate good and love. What do they love? Evil. 
You hate good and love evil. You tear off people's skins and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Cauldron. You eat, you destroy my people, you abuse my people because you're the rulers, you're the kings, you're the ones in authority and no one can check you. So you abuse your power and you oppress. That's injustice. This can be so hard to see when we honestly examine ourselves, especially when it's the pattern of the culture to perpetuate injustice. God responds with inevitable disaster. Look at verse four. This, is, um, this verse made me um, stop and think for a while because it says, then when, they, when they're convicted, the leaders, what will they do in verse four? They'll cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face, face from them at that time because of the crimes they committed. Now, does that sound harsh? I mean, God will hide his face from them? Doesn't it say in Joel 2.32, the principle here, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Here, when they call out to God, when they cry out to him, does, does God save them? Does God hear them? No. So is Joel 2.32 wrong? Is that principle wrong? Is it true that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Yes or no? Yes. That's what the verse says. Is it true that some people will cry out to God and God won't hear them? Is that true? Yes. That's what it says here. What does that mean then? Well, Jeremiah 29, 13 says this. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with, does anyone know what it says? With what? With your whole heart. So when you cry out to me and call out to me to save you, you call out to Jesus to save you. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you call out with your whole heart to God, will he answer every time? Yes. But when you cry out to God half-heartedly, when you cry out to God with your mouth while clutching your sin and compromise with your hand behind your back, will God hear you? No, not here. Not them. They'll cry out to God. And he won't hear because their cry out is a half cry. It's a divided heart. Now this sounds harsh. So God's going to judge them and destroy them? Yeah, that's what it says. God's going to destroy them. He's going to send them into exile. He's going to kick them out of their land. Now this sounds like an unloving and harsh God. If you're not a Christian, you might say, I believe in a God of love and a God who forgives and forgets. This is not a God who forgives and forgets. This is a God who's intentionally not listening to people who are crying out to him. This God sounds mean. This God sounds harsh. It is true that the true God is a God of love. The Bible says God is love. So if you're not a Christian, just know the Bible does say God is a God of love. And it's also true that God is patient and forgiving and that God loves to forgive sins. It is true that God, that a God who would take pleasure in hurting people selfishly, a God who would take pleasure in selfishly hurting people would, be, would not be a good God, would not be the true God. That's true. Even your own poets, D.D. Halligan and Junior Torello have said, you guys know those poets? D.D. Halligan and Junior Torello? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. What is love? Don't hurt me. Love, love is not hurting me. And in a sense, if you listen to the song, maybe I'm taking their, their words out of context here. But God, God does, I mean, love means not wanting to intentionally hurt someone unjustly and unrighteously. 
God is warning them of judgment. He's warning them that he won't hear them so that they would cry out with their whole hearts and avoid the danger. So God warning people is helping them to avoid the hurt. That is love. That's why Jesus says, everyone I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Because when God loves, he does rebuke. He does warn. And so we don't deny God's justice and wrath and judgment. We accept it. But we also know that God is a God of love who warns us to avoid judgment. Not only that, furthermore, if God's going to forgive, he has to absorb the pain himself. Whenever you forgive anyone when they hurt you badly, to, to forgive that person means that you can't get mad at them. That you need to take the pain yourself and absorb it. And that's what God does. God absorbs the pain on the cross. Christ dies for sinners and takes our our sin. So if you want a God who doesn't judge, then you don't want a God who loves. Because God, in loving, has to judge evil. When you feel deeply, you love deeply, but you also judge justly. And that's what God does. Okay, so what what are some other sins? Go to chapter chapter 3, look at um, verse 5. You know that prosperity... Preachers are not just in the just today. Look at uh, chapter three, verse five. Here's a prosperity verse. Prosperity prophets. This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead people astray. What do they proclaim? They proclaim what? Peace when? When they have what? When they have food to sink their teeth into, but, but they declare war against the one who puts what? Nothing in their mouths. I'll declare peace to you if you what? Feed me. But if you, oh, you have, no, you have no food for me? You're not going to put anything in my mouth? Well, guess what? God's going to judge you. That's what the prophets are doing. That's prosperity preachers, right? And that's exactly what it is. If you, if, you give, if you feed me, then I declare peace. But I declare war on those who don't have anything to feed me. And so God is saying, you have false prophets. You false prophets, you just do everything for your own, for your own bellies. You, you fleece God's people. And you abuse them for your own profit. And that is damnable. It's false teaching, false prophecy. And, the, and, and so God calls them out. Look at verses 6 and 7. What's the judgment on these false prosperity prophets? Look at verse 6 and 7. Here's their judgment. Therefore, it will be night for you without visions. It will grow dark for you without divination. The sun will set on these prophets and the daylight will turn black over them. Then the seers will be ashamed and the diviners will be disappointed. They will... They will all cover their mouths because there will be no answer from God. What's the judgment for these false prophets? What's the judgment for them? There will be no what? No light? No word from who? Word from God. Okay, get this. When you are a prosperity preacher and you keep preaching just what people want to hear for your own good, you will become deaf and you won't be able to hear God. So you can read your Bible. You can teach the Bible week after week on Sundays, show up on TV, but you can't even hear God's word even as you're reading it out loud to people. It's darkness. You read the Bible with darkness on your eyes and darkness on your heart and deafness in your ears because you preach a false peace for your own prosperity. And that's damnable. And they were having that in Israel here in Micah chapter three. Now you contrast these prosperity prophets with Micah, look at verse eight. But as for Micah, as for me, however, I'm filled with what? with power by the spirit of Yahweh, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. Here's the difference. Here's how you can know a true prophet from a false prophet, a true teacher from a false teacher. Here it is, right here in verse eight. They have the spirit of the Lord in them. They have justice and courage. And what will they proclaim to to God's people? 
They'll proclaim their rebellion and their sin. Every true preacher preaches Christ. But you can't truly preach Christ if you don't truly preach sin and judgment and rebellion. And so you, if you don't preach Christ, you don't preach, or if you don't preach judgment and sin, you don't preach Christ. And that's a false gospel. And that's what they're tolerating. But, but Micah is our example of how we as gospelizers, as disciples, have, have to live. Look at verse 9, verses 9 through 11. Listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, you who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. There's injustice. They, they take bribes. Her priests teach for what? For payment. And her prophets practice divination for what? For silver. They're prostituting the ministry. Yet they lean on Yahweh saying, isn't Yahweh among us? No disaster will overtake us. What do you call that again? Presumption, right? I can use God's word for my own personal profit. I could speak false things. And guess what? No disaster is going to overtake us. God's not going to judge us. I'm not going to get in trouble. You're not going to get in any trouble. We can do this with no consequences. And so they presume and they perpetuate injustice. Therefore, God says in verse 12, because of you, false prophets, because of you, false leaders, because of you, false kings, therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins and the temple's mountain will be a high thicket. You're gonna be exiled. I'm gonna destroy you. And so be convicted of your sin. And let's, so that's chapter three. Let's go to chapter six. Last chapter here on, on um, this first point about accusations. And let me just summarize it. We're not going to read as many verses here. Let me summarize it by saying, here's chapter six summarized. Be convicted of sin and respond appropriately. Live by faith and repentance for continued reformation. So be convicted of your sin and live it out by faith. Those who don't fruitfully repent are sentenced to judgment and futility. So God says, all right, tell me if I'm wrong. I said you're sinning. Testify against me if you have a case. And then... Micah asked this very important question. We will read this verse. This is a key verse in Micah. Uh, chapter six, verses six through eight. Micah says, okay, if we have all this sin in our people, if I'm sinning, if all of our people are sinning, what do we do? What does God want of me? And here's the wrong answers. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression? the offspring of my body for my own sin. Is that what you do when you sin? Just make your own sacrifices and give up your own things? Is that what you do? Cleanse yourself? No. What does God require of you? What does God require here? In verse eight, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you. What is it? Three things. To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to what? To walk humbly with your God. So here's a call to true Christianity, well, true faith, which is act righteously. Don't just tolerate injustice in your society and in your community. Act righteously, not just for yourself, but for others. Act justly, all right? Love faithfulness, be faithful to the covenant and love people and walk humbly with God. That's what God requires of you. Not to make sacrifices, not to merely participate in rituals. Rituals are good when they're meaningful and they're thoughtful and they're, and they're biblical. But rituals can become unbiblical. I had a, a, um, in our church, I've been here at Pastor for almost five years. Uh, one time, one of the kids came up to me and said, Pastor, I want to get baptized. I said, why? And he said, because I have sin. 
And I said, well, what are you going to do about your sin? And he said, well, um, I just need to stop making a mess. And then I proceeded to share the gospel with the, with the child. But the point here is that they could see baptism. We're going to do baptism. We take the Lord's Supper every week. And you could see these God-ordained, Christ-ordained rituals that are right, and you can misunderstand and misuse them. What does God require of you if you're going to have true faith in God? To act justly, to love faithfulness or mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's what he requires. He requires real change. And if you don't, at the end of chapter 6, you're going to have judgment, exile, and the covenant curses. All right, let me apply this before we go to our last point. Let me just give you an illustration here to apply it, and then we'll move on. So, and most of my application, it's really short. I'm just going to give the, the, um, the illustration here. When I read this, I was thinking, how does this apply today to Christians? What are the blindnesses that we might see in our lives? And I was like, what, what current blindness do I have, or does our church have that I can point out that I see? And my answer was, I don't know. Because if I have a blindness, then I am blind to it. So I can only go back to previous blindnesses that I have seen. So the one I wrote down here, and it, could, it is debatable, and so the, you don't have to agree with me on the take, but I think the point will still stand. My blindness, I'm just going to share it briefly, my blindness on ethnocentric oppression until 2014. I was blind to the fact that, that um, members of my church, in, in, even in LA in 2014, um, members of my church, African Americans, we're feeling and actually being, I would say, we, we don't have to agree on this, but we're actually being, actually being oppressed in our society, and I didn't see it forever. I mean, not forever, except for my whole life. I've been a pastor for 12 years up until that point, and it was a lot of the shootings and news was going on, and I was in my small group in my living room with some brothers, and I said, all right, guys, just talk to me. Tell me what's going on. What are you thinking? And they proceeded to share for the rest of the night all kinds of stories, and I realized that I had a functional assumption that ethnocentric oppression did not exist anymore in America. That was my functional assumption. And my, what I would argue is that if, uh, that, that if you assume that functional oppression does not exist towards African Americans, that assumption is itself oppressive because it perpetuates and reinforces the oppression. So for example, I'm a disciple maker. We're all disciple makers as Christians, but I'm a disciple maker as a pastor. I'm preaching and discipling all the time. And with my assumption that something that does exist doesn't exist, I'm discipling my people to assume that it doesn't exist. Get which, and then they start arguing with other Christians, and they perpetuate that functional assumption that it doesn't exist. And guess what? The blindness perpetuates itself. The blindness continues. Do you see that? And so I just want to say here, because we might not agree on that as a church. In our confession of faith, we don't have in our confession of faith to be a member of this church. You have to agree with me on ethnocentric oppression toward African Americans. So just relax, Okay. We don't all have to agree on that. We could discuss it, and we should discuss it. It is a discipleship issue. But in our church, we don't, we're not, that's not a confessional point. But I think what is not debatable, so me and John MacArthur, I, I disagree with John MacArthur's take on this, but what is not debatable, I think everyone here in our church, every member has to agree on this, and I agree with John MacArthur on this. He, this is what he said. We want to help those who are truly suffering. Amen? I mean, if people are truly suffering, don't we want to help? If people were truly suffering and we turned a blind eye and we continued to live life as normal, leaving them, are we not perpetuating the indifference toward those who are truly suffering? Now, the debate is whether African-Americans, generally speaking, are truly suffering in America. And I'm happy to debate that with you at the door or anytime, not in a mean way, 
but just in a friendly, loving way. I'm happy to discuss it with you. But my point here is whether, whichever way you fall on that, the point is that we have blind spots and it gets reinforced even in churches, even in Christian cultures, even from pastors who exposit the scriptures week after week after week. It's happening in here, not just out there. And if we don't see our blindness, if God is not merciful to open our eyes by hearing from others and getting us to quietly listen first before defending ourselves and presuming that I already understand all the issues and I already get it. When you presume that, you can't hear. You're deaf. But if, you could just, if we could just stop and listen first to God's word and to other Christians who are different than us, we could still disagree at the end of the day. And we might be right and they might be wrong or they might be right and we might be wrong. But if we don't even listen and we just presume we're right already because I don't intentionally sin in that way, well, then you're already doomed to your own blindness. Are you not? You can't see anymore. Just, you just hope you're right. Because if you're not, there's no, you're not going to hear anyone anyways. Okay, so the application here, just very briefly, is let's pray that God would give us soft hearts that are open to rebuke. For the church family, my application would be invite and speak truth and warning into each other's lives. Share your opinions with each other humbly, but the more you're convinced of it biblically, the more forcefully you should share it with still, still with humility and with openness. So I'm not saying oppress people now in the church with your opinion, but I am saying we need to be truth tellers in the church and not give in to the fear of what other people might think. We need to speak the truth in love. That's what we need to do. If you're not a Christian, you might say, you know what, PJ, I disagree that there's injustice. I disagree that we have blind spots. I disagree that we're presumptuous. I disagree that there's judgment. I mean, who is this? Who is Micah, written 2,700 years ago? What does this old book have for me? Why would I have to listen to what this old book has to say to me? I don't have to listen to this kind of God. He doesn't know me. It's 2,700 years ago. Well, if that's you, let me just say this briefly. If you have a Bible... If, if every time the Bible disagrees with you or God disagree, disagrees with you, you could just say, I don't agree with that. You have to ask yourself, who is your true God? Do you, only agree with, do you only agree with the parts of the Bible that agree with you? Then who's the authority? Who's the God? You are. And your opinions. If the Bible could never rebuke you, so, so if you're not a Christian, I have, my question for you is, do you actually want the God of the Bible or do you want a God who's your own reflection? who just agrees with what you already think. Any true lover, I mean, if I just told my wife, you can only say the things I agree with. Some, some husbands might initially and foolishly say, that would be great. <laughs> but I say initially and foolishly because you know deep down that that would not be great. That would not be great. That wouldn't be love. That wouldn't be a relationship. And we know that deep down. So if you want a relationship with God, then you have to let God disagree and rebuke you. All right, let's move to the, so, so praise God that he rebukes us and warns us. Let's go to the second point here. So listen to God, and then lastly, and secondly, look to God's promised hope. Look to God's promised hope. Um, let's define, there's three elements of this promised hope, okay? So if you're taking notes, three elements of the promised hope. There is the gathering of God's people. So gathering, ruler, and restoration. Those are the three words. Gathering, ruler, and restoration. God promises that in chapter two, I'm not even gonna read it, but he promises he's gonna gather his sheep, chapter two, verse 12. He's gonna gather his sheep back to himself. Does that sound like anyone talking about gathering sheep? I am the good shepherd. 
My sheep know me. I, have, I know my own and they know me. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my vo- voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who said that? Jesus in John 10. There's a promise that God is going to gather his sheep back to himself. And, and then you get to the second element, which is restoration. God promises restoration. Go to chapter 4. Chapter 4 has the hope of restoration. Look at chapter 4, verses, chapter four, verse 1. In the last days, now think about this. This is, okay, wait, hold on. Everyone look up here. Christians, if you've been a Christian a long time, you've got to kind of raise some things in your mind just for a second. Get back to being an Israelite back then. Your, your place is about to be destroyed. You're hoping for this new hope, okay? And then, so take that. What is it like to, have an Israel, to be an Israelite with this hope? I want you to think about that. Okay, now put a second thought next to it. The new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21 22, the final heaven. Put those together because they are actually the same thing, and you'll see it here in Revelation 4, I mean, Revelation, Micah 4 1. In the last days, the mountain of Yahweh's house will be established. At the top of the mountains, there will be, uh, will be, at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Peoples will stream into it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. Who's coming, to Israel? Who's coming to Jerusalem? Who's going to the temple? The peoples, the nations. Are they Israelites? No, they're the Gentiles. The Gentiles will seek who? Yahweh. This is the promised end. When the kingdom of Israel is restored finally and fully and completely, the peoples will be there. The non-Jews, ethnically, that's me and you, many of you, if you're a Christian. Why? For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation and they will never again train for war, but each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the Lord of armies has spoken. You get a mansion, a house, your own fig tree, your own vine, your own resources. No more trouble about working and worrying about money. Fully provided for with God's people. No more fighting with each other. Full peace. This is the new heavens and the new earth, or at least the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. This is what God promised to Israel, that they will have restoration. All right? Um, every ethnic people group. We know from Revelation, it's not just some ethnic people groups. Every ethnic people group will be there, right? From every tribe, tongue, nation. Every time, tribe, tongue, nation, and people. All of them will be represented. What this means for us as a church, I'm thinking about many of you here, and we prayed about it, is that some of you need to be missionaries to the ethnic people groups, the unreached people groups. And every one of you here needs to have a heart for the unreached ethnic people groups. Every Christian, every time you give to our church, every time you hear a sermon, every time you talk to each other and greet each other, you need to think regularly, strive to connect what you do here to what's going on there. Because God will save people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. All right, so that's the restoration. How are they going to get there? How are they going to get to this restoration? Look at chapter 4, verse 9. Well, chapter 4, verse 9, they're, they're, um, they're crying because they're being exiled. In chapter, look at verse 10 of chapter 4. He says to them, Writhe and cry out, daughter, like a woman in labor. Give birth. You know, like birth is painful, right? But at the end, so my son just had his manhood party yesterday. And I looked at my wife's blog post from Rock's first birthday, and we, I read it to her. And one of the things she said was, 
she was recounting her labor and the nine months and how it was all worth it. And I said to her, see, we could have another one. But she, she, didn't, she didn't like that. She didn't like that part. But, but what the letter did say and communicate was that the pain was worth it. And it was sweeter on the other side. And what God is saying here to Israel is, writhe in pain. You're going to be exiled. But then look, what happens after the exile, though? Look at verse 11. Many nations have now assembled against you. They say, let her be defiled and let us feast our eyes on Zion. But they do not know Yahweh's intentions or understand his what? His plan that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. So in other words, Israel, you're going to go through exile. You're going to be judged. It's like a, like a woman in labor. But on the other side, it's going to be sweet. Because as your pain, as God brings this trial to you of exile, he's bringing the nations. And what are you going to do with the nations in verse 13? It's not a typical thought we think, but rise and thresh. He's bringing the nations to the threshing floor for judgment. Then he says, rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will make your horns iron and your hooves bronze. So you will crush many peoples. Then you will set apart their plunder for the Lord, their wealth for the Lord of the whole earth. What is that saying? We don't think a lot about this as Christians. We don't think about this a lot enough. In the final restoration, it's not just restoration of God's people, it's judgment on God's enemies. And people cry out for justice. Those who are beheaded under the altar, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood, is what the saints cry out. And here here it's talking about that. You will go through exile. You will be oppressed by the nations, Israel. But guess what? God's bringing the nations there for you to smash them in judgment for their sin. God will mete out his judgment on the nations through his people. Wow. That's the restoration. Final salvation, but also final judgment. And God will do it. He will exalt his people, and he will gather other Gentiles like us, like Bethany Baptist Church, into this, under this Israelic covenant, the new Israelic covenant, and we will be his people, and we will be redeemed with him, and we will judge with him the nations. That's the promise here. But here's what I want you to get. When you're in trial, who's in control? God is. So brother, sister, some of you are going through a one-week trial. Some of you are going through a one-month trial. Some, are you, some of you are going through a 10-year trial, a heavy one. And you just walk around with the burden on your shoulders, and it feels like it never comes off. Just want to encourage, I want to encourage you. God has ordained it for your good. He will relieve your pain. He will bring restoration. He will bring final judgment against your enemies and he will exalt you in Christ Jesus. Wait on him. Trust in him. He is coming. All right, so there's the restoration. And then the ruler, Micah chapter five. Look at Micah chapter five, beginning in verse two. So here's the, in chapter five, verse one, there's the attack against Israel. There's an attack against God's king. But then here's the famous prophecy, 5-2. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Who's that? Who's going to be born in Bethlehem and his time is from antiquity? Who is that? Jesus the Messiah. That's right. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. That's like Revelation 12. Then the rest of the rulers, brothers and sisters, the rest of Jesus' brothers and sisters, brothers, will return to the people of Israel. Jesus, I'm just going to say Jesus, even though it's saying he, he, he is 700 years before, but we know it's fulfilled in Jesus. 
Jesus will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of Yahweh his God. They will live securely, for then Jesus' greatness will extend to where? To the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. Here's where peace comes from. Here's where the kingdom comes from. It comes from the king who was born in Bethlehem. His time is from ancient days. He's eternal. And he will come. And so he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me just as the father knows me. And I have known my father. I laid down my life for the sheep. This is why the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. I must bring in, I have other sheep that are not from the sheep pen. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. There will be one shepherd, one flock. Jesus will gather the Gentiles, the ethnic people groups, and the Israelites into one people under Christ. Amen? Christ will do that. And he does it by dying on the cross for our sins. By giving up his life for us, dying and rising. Then we will rule and reign with Christ forever. All right, go to chapter 7. Last chapter here. Chapter 7. For the sake of time, I'm going to summarize 1 through 5. But chapter 7, if there's one chapter in Micah that you meditate on, it's chapter 7. 1 through 5 is just basically saying this. There's no one we can trust. Micah stands up and he looks around and he says, there is no faithful person anywhere. I'm the only one. You ever feel that way? You, look, you stand up and look around and you're like, there are no other faithful people out there. I mean, you might say, oh, I know I have a church of 87 other members with me. And so you kind of know that, praise God that he uses that to encourage you. But sometimes you still feel all alone. Like you look around at all the craziness in this world, maybe the craziness in your family, sometimes the craziness in churches, and you say, am I the only one who gets it? Am I the only one who's not crazy? And so um, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Micah is super discouraged. He's just so down and like, man, there are no faithful people anywhere. I can't trust anybody. Look at verse 6. This is a quote now. You know verse 6. Surely, with nobody getting it, verse 6, surely a son considers his dad a fool. A daughter opposes her mom. A daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Who quoted this? Jesus. When he says, if anyone loves father or mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. He says, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Why, why do people in Micah's day not get it? They're confused by their presumption, their blindness, and their false prophets and teaching, right? What about today? Are people confused by false prophets, blindness, and the culture that's pressing in on them? Yes. And, the only, and so the only person you can trust is Jesus, right? And when you trust Jesus, everyone else will be against you when they're against Jesus. And so just like Micah, just like the disciple today, we need to do what Micah did in verse 7. So what do we do in the midst of the craziness? When you're discouraged, what do you do? What does Micah do in verse 7? But I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I'm going to wait for God. I'm not going to be so discouraged. We sang this. Um, when we're in the storm, right? Christ assurance that anchor. Lift our eyes to what? Calvary. When you're in the storm of your life, you're in the storm of the church, you're in the storm of this culture, you're in the storm of your community, lift your eyes. To Calvary, I will wait for the Lord. Now, is waiting being passive or is it being active? It's active. It's not passive. What does it mean to wait for the Lord? Look at verses 9 and 8 through 10. It tells you what, what it means to wait for the Lord. This is what it means when you're waiting for the Lord, especially when you're sinning. Okay? This is not you, super faithful Christian. This is you, hypocritical Christian and guilt-ridden Christian. 
How do you wait for the Lord when you feel guilty? Here's how Micah does it. Don't rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, though I sinned, I will what? I will stand up. I will arise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Notice the will be. I will stand. The Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I must endure the Lord's rage. I will endure his discipline until he champions my cause. He will champion my cause and establishes justice for me. He will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation. Then my enemy will see, and she will be covered with shame. The one who said to me, where is Yahweh your God? My eyes will look at her in triumph. At that time, she will be trampled like mud in the streets. What does it mean to wait for the Lord? It means to know that you will stand, you will see, you will have the light, God will be your light, you will be justified, God will work justice for you, you will be vindicated among those who mock you and misunderstand you, and you will triumph. You will, if you're in Christ. So wait for him. You don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to prop yourself up and make sure everyone likes you. Wait for him. Waiting is believing hoping, speaking, trusting, and declaring God's truth with realistic optimism. The opposite of waiting is when you listen to those lies in your head and you start saying it. Nobody cares. Nobody gets it right. I'm doomed anyways. I can't change. Nobody's gonna change. The gospel's not gonna spread. Our church is doomed. When you start talking like that, you're not waiting on the Lord. You're actually leaning on Satan's lies. Waiting is trusting in God, not with a blind optimism, but a realistic biblical optimism. God is at work, is he not? And he will continue to work until Christ comes. So we trust in that. And when you see that in chapter 7, verses 11 through 13, Israel's territory will expand because God, the kingdom, will be here on earth. I I take that as a future millennium um, and the new earth to come in Revelation 20 through 22. Our confession of faith is open, so you might take that as going on now, spiritually. And that's a possible uh, interpretation. But then Micah prays for, for God to shepherd and for him to redeem Israel. And so the application here, and it's short, in suffering and in discouragement, in your loss, in your setbacks, in your confusion and pain, just pray what Micah prayed or just say what Micah said in Micah 7, 7. I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Take the, take the song here from song number one in the bulletin, I will wait for you, and sing it. Not right now. Sing it at home. <laughs> sing it in your trials. And, and pray it to God. Or repeat it to God. Take, just wait on the Lord. So what's the main goal? Listen and look to God so that you see through his lies and live with hope. So to summarize, listen to God when he accuses and warns you. Pray that God would take off the blind spots. Fear God's judgment. Listen to God's call for judgment and tremble at his judgment. And then look to God who is gathering his people. He's gonna bring, he's, he brought his ruler and he's bringing his ruler again. Christ is coming again. And look to the restoration to come. Under the old Israeli covenant, Micah failed and Israel failed. And under the, under the new Israeli covenant, do we look to God and listen faithfully? Do we do it perfectly? No, we don't. And so we deserve... We have been indifferent to injustice and perpetuating the status quo. We have lowered our standards of faithfulness and we walk arrogantly with God when God tells us to walk humbly with him. And yet God gives us a gracious word like Micah 7, 18 to 20. Look at Micah 7, last verses. 
Sweetest gospel verses probably in the book, though Micah 5 is sweet too. But listen to this. Who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold his anger, hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the what? The depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to your fathers from days long ago. God will forgive. How can God do this? How can God be loyal and pass over rebellion and let go of his anger and delight in faithful love? How can he have compassion on us and cast our iniquities into the sea? How can God do that for us when we are so unfaithful? How can he do this for us? We, didn't, we don't live justly and walk humbly with God. But Christ did, didn't he? Did Christ act justly? Did he love faithfulness and mercy? Did he walk humbly with God? He never failed to do that. And even though Jesus did that, Jesus, look at verse 18 again. Did God pass over Jesus on the cross? Or did he, did he put the judgment on him? He, put the, he didn't pass over Jesus. He put the judgment on him. Did, you, did God withhold his anger from Jesus on the cross? Or did he pour out his anger and wrath? He poured out his anger and wrath. Did he have compassion, verse 19, on Jesus on the cross? When he's hanging in darkness? When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was that God compassionate on Christ? No. He wasn't compassionate in that moment. He threw Christ, in a sense, with our sins into the depths of the sea to be drowned. Christ died for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that God can take his anger away from us, so that we don't have to perish in our rebellion, so that God can pass over your sins. Praise God for Christ's death and resurrection. If you're not a Christian, this is the message of the gospel. God is holy and he made you. You're a sinner doomed and damned to hell forever. We all are. But God sent his son to die for our sins. He did not withhold his anger from Christ. He did not withhold, he withheld his compassion from Christ and he judged him on the cross for our sins so that if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, you will be saved. So call on the name of the Lord to save you. My final call to action for you, brothers and sisters, get feedback from your church family. If you have blind spots, get feedback from your church family. Share with someone a trial or temptation in your life where you sense God is actively calling you to wait for him. We all need to wait for God, right? Actively. What, what is the area of your life where God is really saying, PJ, right here, this is where you need to wait on me. Share that with brothers or sisters here today and, and um, get feedback from them and prayer support from them. If you don't share where you're at in life, you'll be stuck in your blind spots. You'll always presume you're okay. You'll, and you might even end up facing judgment. And I could guarantee you this, you won't grow. You'll merely reinforce what you already know. But if you get feedback from other brothers and share where you sense God is calling you to wait on him, you'll realize your sin. You'll realize, you'll, you'll tremble at God's warnings. You'll be alert to God's grace and you'll experience joy and growth. So as we wait for Jesus in this world, let's remember what he said at the end of the Great Commission. I am with you Always. And what he said at the end of Revelation 22. Yes, I am coming soon. Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha, come now. 
come and bring in your kingdom in its fullness and bring the end, the new heavens and the new earth, we pray. And until then, help us to wait for you and help us to wait together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.